Well, morning, everybody. It's really good to see you. This morning, we are going to carry on our series looking at seven shaping virtues. Uh, please turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So this morning, the virtue we're looking at once again for the third and final time is generosity. And the title I've given to this morning's message is The Joy of Generous Giving. Last week, we looked at money and possessions and eternity. The week before, we looked at the, the generosity of God in particular. This morning, the joy of generous giving. And I have a fairly long reading, but it's a good one. I know they're always good, but this one is just full of encouragement, I think. So we're going to begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And then chapter 9, verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings 
to God. Now, who in their right mind, in the midst of an economic downturn, and also just two days after Black Friday, when maybe some of us spent more than we should have, and others of us spent nothing and lamented that we couldn't, who would choose to listen to a message on generous gospel giving? Considering the times that we're living in, it might seem like a message on generous giving is just a little bit inappropriate and untimely. A bit like trying to address the importance of regular car maintenance with someone sat on the hard shoulder and their engine is on fire. Or a bit like beginning to talk to someone about eating more healthily and keeping fit whilst in the back of the ambulance as they're reeling from a suspected heart attack. There is a time and a place, isn't there, for certain conversations. And surely the time and the place for talking about giving is not when some of us are shivering at home because we don't want to turn on the heating. And when inflation and interest rates are going through the roof. Yet the truth is that as Christians, we are always called to be thinking and talking about how to steward our money and possessions well. Thinking during both economic upturns and downturns about what we might keep and what we might give, perhaps even doubly so when we're tempted to worry and despair. It is good for us to talk about this. Uh, Now, we've said it before, and I want to say it again. This series on generosity is not in any way motivated because, as a church, we need money. God continues to provide for our needs richly through the generous giving of the members of this church. And we, we just confidently trust that if he has more areas of gospel ministry for us all to move into as a church, he will provide all that we need to do his will. So this morning is not about fundraising, not one bit about fundraising. This morning is really about joy raising. Because in a financial crisis like the one we're in right now, what we need more than anything is to be reminded to seek joy in the place where our true treasure lies, in Jesus. And if there's one thing that stands out, I think, in these two chapters that we've just read from this morning, it's that it's inviting the Corinthians and us to generous gospel giving, but not on a path that's sort of one of greater misery and darkness that God is calling us down. It's clear to me this is one of greater and more abundant joy. I just think that that comes through so clearly in the way that Paul writes. It's an invitation to experience more spiritual treasure. He speaks of grace abounding. It's an invitation to happy and glad thanksgiving, overflowing abundantly from our lips and our lives to magnify our generous God. I wonder if you got a sense of that even just in the reading of it, that joyful anticipation. It strikes me that only such a generous, happy and kind God as God is would make one of the longest sections in the Bible that's on giving be a place not about austerity and rulemaking, but a place of overflowing joy and promise. That's the goodness of God to us this morning. And all of that begins in chapter 8, verse 1, with a focus on the gift of generous giving. So that's the first of three headings this morning, the gift of generous giving. Look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Here's the thing. Giving is something we tend to think of primarily as doing good to others. I make a sacrifice at cost to myself in order to bless and benefit someone else. I lose out and they gain. 
That's what giving's all about, isn't it? My loss for another's gain. But is that completely right? Certainly it's true that generous giving is often costly. We give up some of what we have in order for others to gain. But is it right to say that we lose out when we give? Well, not according to verse 1. Here, Paul tells the Corinthians of how God's grace has recently been given to the churches of Macedonia. And he's probably talking here about churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. He says these poverty-stricken churches have been given a gift from God. So what's the gift? Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you hear there what the gift is that God has given to these Macedonian churches? It's not a new building, not a new PA system, not even a large sum of money to bring them out of poverty. No, it's something far better They've been given the gift of giving. God has given them generous hearts. He's given them a wealth of generosity towards others. That is his glorious gift to them. That even in the midst of persecution and extreme poverty, they choose to freely give away much that they could have kept in order to take part in the relief of others. In in this case, uh, poor, suffering Christians in Jerusalem. In fact, so generous was God in giving them generous hearts that they begged Paul earnestly, eagerly to let them give. And I have to ask myself, how often in my life have I begged for the opportunity to give? What this means is that when we as Christians, when we're generous towards others, our generosity is a visible sign of God's invisible grace working in us. Generosity in our hearts that leads to generosity with our money and possessions, that is a gift of God to us, a gift of God to the giver. That's why Paul, at the end of his letter to the Philippians, tells them how encouraged he is that they gave to support him. But he makes very clear it's not that he's ultimately encouraged for his own sake because it helped him. He's most thankful for their sake that they chose to give. Philippians 4.17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's grateful they gave, first and foremost, because he delights to see them being generous and fruitful. He knows they benefit from being givers, because giving is a gift of God to the giver. Okay, hopefully then this morning, giving is already beginning to look desirable to us again, if it wasn't already. Even in an economic downturn, it is a rich blessing of God to receive an increasingly generous heart within us. But the encouragement doesn't end there. That is just the beginning. The next encouragement that's so prominent throughout these two chapters is that there are a a multitude of other compelling reasons for generous giving as well. So second heading for this morning, this one's a little bit longer, the reason for generous giving. Paul gives us four particular reasons for generous giving. First one is, it proves our love. Chapter 8, verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Genuine earnest giving, Paul says, 
is one of the key proofs that our love for God and our love for other people is genuine because we give to those we love. Giving to God is a demonstration of our love for him. Giving to other people is a demonstration of our love for them. Not giving and not wanting to give throws our love into question. Uh, James 2 verse 15, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 1 John 3.17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Genuine love doesn't begin and end with just saying nice things to people when they're in need or telling them we hope things work themselves out. Genuine love, if we're Christians, leads to generous deeds. Generous deeds of generous love, including generous giving, thereby proving that our love is a Christ-like love. That's the first reason Paul gives the Corinthians to give. The second reason he gives is it meets real needs, actual real needs. 9 verse 12, the ministry of this service is supplying the needs of the saints. Paul, you see, is not here talking about giving theory. He's not giving a lecture. Let's all just sort of hypothetically think about the act of giving. He has in mind real people and the supply of their actual, real, concrete needs. Needs that need to be met. Needs that may not be so fully met if the Corinthians don't also get on board in also to play a part in meeting them. What this means is that, if you think about it, God's plan of care and provision for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem, it wasn't independent of the Corinthians being willing to do it. It wasn't kind of like, well, God is sovereign, so he'll, he'll, do it, he'll give them all that they need anyway. We don't need to do anything. No, God in his sovereignty intended to move the Corinthians' hearts, that they might play a vital part in his providing for the saints in Jerusalem. And perhaps with me, uh, you can't help but think, I was thinking this week about the needs, Nick mentioned it again, of our brothers and sisters in uh, Dnipro, Ukraine. They find themselves in the midst of unimaginable hardship right now, but in the midst of it all, God has provided for so many of their financial and material needs. Uh, week after week, the pastor there continues to send back messages testifying to God's unfailing provision but at no point, as far as I know, has God ever just sort of dropped money out of heaven to them. No, instead, every week since the springtime, he has moved the hearts of other churches and Christians around the world, including our hearts, to contribute our money to supply the needs of the saints in Dnipro. You and I, through our giving, have had the privilege of meeting the very real needs of our brothers and sisters. And they would, have not, they would not have experienced all of the divine help that they have if the grace of God had not worked in us, giving us generous hearts that were eager to play our part as well. So generous giving meets actual real needs. Third reason for generous giving is it glorifies Christ. And this really, I think, has got to be the ultimate Christian motivation for all generous giving, one that should never be replaced in having the top spot on the leaderboard of reasons to give. Look at verse 9, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We're to give generously because we have known firsthand the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ towards us. That though he was exalted in the heavens with his Father, he willingly left the riches and eternal joys of heaven to come to earth as a man. He came to give away his very life for us so that we might experience the riches and the joys of heaven in exchange. Now, as those who've received heaven's riches in Christ, we're, we're now called to follow in his footsteps of generous giving, not to earn his love, but in response to his love. Our giving now showcases his giving on the cross, and it magnifies the richness of his grace. It shows forth his love. It glorifies Christ. And the fourth and final reason for giving that Paul shares is that generous giving actually benefits us. It benefits us. And I felt this point was worthy of an exclamation mark. They often do that with headings, but there you go. Chapter 8, verse 10. And in this matter, Paul says, I give my judgment. This benefits you. This benefits you. Well, how does it benefit us? Well, last week we saw it helps us to treasure Christ and eternity more. We've already said, we've already seen it, deepens our assurance that our love is genuine. But the benefit Paul goes into most detail about now is that it also promises a beautiful reward, a bountiful reward. Chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Then again, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. And then verse 11 you will be enriched in every way. So that's three times at least Paul is telling the Corinthians, telling us that if we practice generous giving, it will result in a rich reward. So what is this? Uh, is this the health and wealth gospel actually found in the pages of our Bibles? Give a big sum of money to the Lord because he'll give you three or four or five or ten times back as a result. That's what those heretical, devilish prosperity teachers will teach. And I guess they probably like to quote 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 as well. You'll give us $500 today, 500 pounds, and tomorrow you'll find 5,000 pounds in your bank account. Well, listen, we only have to read the rest of the passage to see that Paul has nothing so trivial, worldly, or idolatrous in mind as give to God because he'll give you a bigger house or a better car. He tells us what kind of reward, what kind of harvest generous givers will reap. And it's much more desirable and much more lasting than just getting more money to spend on ourselves. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Paul makes himself very clear. God will reward our generosity, but not by making us richer personally, but by making us richer in good works giving us even more opportunities to be generous in every way. 
He, he says he'll provide for our needs so that we can continue to generously meet the needs of others, so that we can play a part in continuing to advance the cause of the gospel in this world. I was reading this week the inspiring example of John Wesley. Uh, I'm sure we've all heard of him, the, the 18th century preacher, writer, founder of the Methodist movement. Uh, he's uh, sort of another local famous Christian figure. Obviously, he ministered in part in Bristol. You can visit his chapel down in the city centre. What many people don't realise about Wesley, though, is that he was one of England's wealthiest men, particularly through the, the sale of his writings. And this is in his lifetime. Yet when he died in 1791, it said that he only possessed a handful of coins in his pocket and a handful of coins in his dresser drawer. And here's why. In 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records that one year his income was £30 and his living expenses £28, so he had £2 to give away. The next year his income doubled, but he still managed to live on £28, so he had £32 to give to the poor. In the third year his income jumped to £90. Instead of letting his expenses rise with his income, he kept them to £28 and gave away £62. In the fourth year, he received £120. As before, his expenses were £28, so his giving rose to £92. Even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds a year, he lived simply and he quickly gave away his surplus money. One year, his income was a little over £1,400. He still lived on £30 and gave away nearly £1,400. Wesley felt that the Christian should not merely tithe, give 10%, but give away all extra income once the family and the creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, what should rise is not the Christian standard of living, but the Christian standard of giving. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth, so the money went out as quickly as it came in to charity, as quickly to the church, as quickly as it could, so that he never had as much as £100 in his possession at any one time in his lifetime. Again, his example reminds me of our brothers and sisters in Nipro. In the midst of their own severe suffering and poverty, still they have been committed this year to giving all that they could to open up their church building, to, to give of their own possessions, to meet the practical and spiritual needs of hundreds, now thousands of refugee men, women, and children. And you see what God has done as a result. God, in his kindness since the spring, has entrusted them as a church with, a, with an incredible supply of money. Not so that they could become less poor for themselves, but so that more money might pass through their hands, enabling them to abound all the more in being generous to others. Is the Apostle Paul then saying that God will increase the amount that a generous Christian giver is able to give year on year? No, he's not promising that at all. And yet God does promise to keep on enriching us in every way, to be generous in every way. He'll never lead us into a place in life where we cannot practice generous giving with what we have, however much or little that might be. He's always willing to give us the gift of giving along with the, the motivation and the ability to generously give. Finally, this morning, let's get really practical then. Let's get really practical. How can we practice? How can we practice generous giving and grow in generous giving ourselves? So third and finally, 
the practice of generous giving. Uh, in light of all that we've heard, how, according to God's word, should we give? First of all, chapter 9, verse 7 says we're to give willingly. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God doesn't want us to be reluctant givers. He wants each and every one of us to make heartfelt decisions for ourselves about what we will give. Only giving because we feel we have to or because we ought to is all but worthless in God's eyes because God cares most about our hearts. And I wonder if you ever thought how uniquely different and how good that is compared to the whole other world of giving that's out there. Every charity, every business, every government in the world that, that asks us to give really only cares about how much we give. They don't really care about how we feel about giving, but God, because he loves us, cares most of all about the heart with which we give. First and foremost, he wants not our money, but our willing hearts. Second of all, he wants us to give with cheerful hearts. He wants us to give cheerfully. So verse 7 again, each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So not just willing hearts, but cheerful hearts. He's eager for us to have hearts that have been so set free by the gospel that they can give gladly and cheerfully. Hearts that have been fired up and set ablaze with joyful generosity by his grace. So give willingly, give cheerfully. Next, thirdly, we're called to give reactively. To give in response to the particular needs of those around us. First of all, in our church family here. Those people around us closest to home. Such that when we see a need, we're ready to react. Just like the Christians did in the early church. Uh, often selling their possessions and their goods and using that money to meet the needs of those around them. Uh, I guess sometimes meeting them directly, we're told as well, sometimes they'd, they'd sell and entrust that money to the church leaders who, who knew who to distribute it to. But ready and quick to serve the needs of those around us. And we're also called to react and respond to the needs of those who are far away as well. Maybe sending funds to support gospel mission or church planting or contributing to collections for those in physical need, maybe many hundreds and even thousands of miles away, which is what Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to do, to, to send money to believers they'd never met, and maybe never would, this side of glory. We're to be eagle-eyed, on the lookout for genuine needs, ready to react with quick-fire generosity as soon as we see it, as quick as Clint Eastwood is to draw his gun at high noon in every western I've ever seen him in. We're to be the best sharpshooters in the land when it comes to acting and responding with generosity. Fourthly, we're also to give routinely. We're to give routinely. Uh, meaning by this, we're not just called to spontaneous reactionary giving. We're also to be thoughtful about setting aside money to give routinely and regularly. And first, first and foremost, I think God's word makes this very clear, first and foremost, to the church, the local church that we're a part of. In terms of routinely, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, it talks about every believer setting aside something to give on the first day of each week when they gather. The Old Testament talks about the principle of first fruits, uh, giving a regular portion of what they receive from God back to God at harvest time. 
Uh, for them, that offering was perhaps once a year. For us, it might be more likely weekly or monthly. However, often or regularly we receive, we get paid. The point is, it's not less spiritual to have a routine for regular giving. Spontaneity doesn't equal more spirituality. The Holy Spirit should be just as active in our hearts when we're sat down planning our budget, planning our giving, as when we're moved with loving spontaneity to give to a special immediate need. Spirit's at work in both, and God calls us to both. Fifthly, and there's seven in all in case you're wondering, fifthly, we are to give generously. Uh, Now this one's going to get us into the real nitty-gritty of how much do I need to give? How much should I decide to give? Is it a set amount? £10, £50, £500? Is it a set percentage? 1%, 10%, 50%? Well, actually, there are no numbers or figures given here by Paul to the Corinthians. Instead, there's this much deeper, richer, heart-focused principle that all Christian giving should be done in a spirit of excelling in generosity. So he says, verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What does it mean to excel? What does it mean to excel in faith? It means to have great faith. To excel in speech, that's to let all our speech be good and wholesome. To excel in love, that's to give our all in loving God and our neighbor. And so to excel in giving must mean as well not doing it minimally or by half measures. Our financial giving is not something that we're to pay little care or attention to or to show only a little enthusiasm for. No, we're to excel in the grace of giving, to strive to do our best in giving with exceeding generosity, to to grow in giving. Maybe asking ourselves not not so much uh, how much of my money am I prepared to give to God, but instead more like... How much of the Lord's money am I prepared to keep for myself? And how much can I pass on and give to others? It's clearly not then about us all giving the same amount either. Not at all. A a generous amount given by one person isn't the same as a generous amount given by another. Remember Jesus' words about the widow in Luke 21. Lots of rich people he describes, uh, they see Uh, coming and putting lots of money in the offering. It's making all sorts of noise. You can hear all the coins going in. And then a widow comes along and puts in just two coins. And he says to his disciples, she put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had. There's also a very clear principle of proportionality throughout the Bible when it comes to giving. Uh, just a few examples, 1 Corinthians 16.2 again, it talks about giving in keeping with our income, giving to the Lord in proportion to what we receive. And in this morning's passage, he says the same thing again in uh, chapter 8, verse 11, of giving according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It's about giving generously according to what each one of us has. For God looks on the heart. And it's cheerful willingness that he's looking for. It's not comparable amounts. He's not looking at your neighbor and going, hang on, that person over there has given far more than you have. No, he's looking at our hearts and at what we have and whether we, we in our position, are giving generously to him. What then about the principle of tithing? 
In the Old Testament, God's people were bound under law to give the first 10%, that's what a tithe means, of all that they received back to the Lord, and uh, along with several other sort of mandatory offerings as well. But what about New Testament Christians? Now, this is the bit where we all lean in, I suspect. Uh, now, on this matter, Christians do disagree. Uh, Pete and I don't believe there's any binding law upon us still for tithing, not like there was under the Old Covenant. And yet, we also see that the principle and practice of tithing, it began much earlier in the Old Testament than when the Mosaic law came in. So it isn't something just to be thrown out of the window and forgotten entirely. Coupled with that, even under the Old Testament law, the tithe was just the beginning of what God's people were encouraged to give. They, they were actually encouraged even then to give much more than 10% and to do so from generous, willing hearts as well. So what about all of us then who are no longer under the old covenant? We're no longer under law. We're under the new covenant that's a covenant of grace. What happens to generous giving in that transition from law to grace? Well, I think it depends on whether we view God's grace as a license to do as little as possible or if we view it as something far more freeing and empowering than the law ever was or ever could be. Whether we view the covenant of grace as something that encourages less godliness and more apathy, or something that allows us to serve God much more wholeheartedly than Old Testament believers were able to, because we have the Spirit of God within us. The principle of a tithe, then, should not be a rule it should not be an end goal for us. We would suggest that just looking at the unfolding storyline of Scripture, it presents giving 10% as a very wise and healthy starting point for the beginning of a Christian's journey into generous giving. That seems to be the, 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 the sort of the general storyline of the Bible. Something that someone once helpfully described as being like the training wheels. That we, I think we call them the stabilizers for learning to ride the bike of Christian generosity. It's like if you want to learn to ride through the Christian life with ever-increasing generosity and joyfully adventurous giving, if you want to become the equivalent of a downhill mountain biker, and that looks certainly adventurous and almost very risky, the place to start to learn is by strapping on the training wheels of giving to God 10% of our income and then praying for the opportunity to grow and increase from there. Which brings us to the sixth way we're called to practice generous giving. Quite naturally, the sixth way, flowing from where we've just been, that is that we give sacrificially. We give sacrificially. Look again at what Paul says about the Macedonian Christians who overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Uh, chapter 8, verse 3, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. What does that second means mean? How did these poverty-stricken Christians give beyond their means? It, it can't mean that they went into debt. They literally borrowed money in order to give. That wouldn't be them giving. So to have given beyond their means must mean that they decided to sacrifice more of what they could have legitimately kept. They chose to sacrifice more possessions or more comforts or more financial security that they could have chosen to hold on to, but they begged for the favor of being able to give more. That is quite a challenge, isn't it, the Macedonian's example? And yet, and yet there is joy here. Don't forget, 
Because this is an invitation to live a life not of increasing misery and austerity, but of ever-increasing joyful generosity and fruitfulness with it. God is here calling us to an ever-increasing cheerfulness and happy abandon in our giving. And that's why I think the seventh and final thing we see prominent here in the call to Christians to give is to have as our final goal of, of giving, thanksgiving. Give thankfully. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The goal of all our giving is an overflow of thanksgiving to God. That, that includes us being thankful as we give. Grateful for the privilege of being a steward of God's money and of, of getting to be the means of God's help in other people's lives and in the unstoppable mission of the gospel. But we're also giving with the goal that those other people will come to give thanks to God too. Whether it's other Christians who pour out their thanks to God once again because of the divine provision they have received for yet another month because of us. Or whether it's a growing community of brand new believers who overflow in thanksgiving to God because they heard the gospel for the very first time and were saved in part through our cheerful, generous, sacrificial gifts. One day the whole earth will be filled with the sound of a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. But here and now, we each have an incredible part to play in preparing for that day, devoting ourselves to being generous in every way, which through us, God promises, will produce thanksgiving to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are altogether gracious and kind and generous beyond measure. Lord, we thank you that you sent Christ, that he gave up the riches of heaven and became poor for us so that through him we might become rich forever with you. Father, we thank you too for the gift of giving and that you, Lord, are committed and eager to help us grow in cheerful generosity, to help us grow in the grace of generous giving. Oh, Lord, please help us to do just that. Lord, please help us to treasure Christ and treasure eternity rather than the treasures of this, this world in such a way, Lord, that we're ready to let go of so many things, to invest those things, to be your stewards to pass on those things, that much more thanksgiving might come to you, that Christ might be glorified, and that many more people might be saved to an eternity of life with you. Lord, may all of our giving now and increasingly throughout our lives, may it serve to magnify the great worth of Christ, magnify his generosity to us, and may our lives, we pray, by their joyful and eager generosity, serve to richly bless others and in turn overflow in thanksgiving to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.